The Bold Intern presents the Best of Both podcast with your host, Vijay Selenki. So the idea behind the Best of Both podcasts is that the best knowledge in marketing and innovation is not all digital or all classical, but the right blend of both. So I'm on a mission to find accomplished leaders especially those who have step-changed their work trajectories. And I'm asking them three questions. One, what did you learn early on in your career that you still use today? Two, what new thing have you learnt in the last five years that you use daily, weekly? And three, what knowledge have you discarded because it just doesn't make sense anymore. When Richard Curtis, the CEO of Future Brand in APAC, walked into the studio, I actually thought he looked like a mod with his long green jacket. Kind of strange, really. He's a graduate from Oxford. He spent some time interning in media agencies before he decided that brand identity was going to be his thing. He cut his teeth in a bunch of well-known brand identity companies like Landor before he came over to Future Brand. What I found particularly interesting was how he was describing how digital has changed the methodology in the brand identity world. And the fact that in this age, style guides suck. Brands now need to come alive on so many different platforms that that traditional tool just doesn't make sense anymore. We should get straight into it. We're here to essentially explore what the best of both means to you as a leader in industry and somebody who's at the forefront of brand identity. Let's get back to the beginning. Tell us a bit about how you got started. I know you were uh, at Oxford. Um, why? And you studied the classics, a double why, and how that shaped you? Look, it shaped me in many ways. Um... There's a bunch of decisions I seem to have made in my life that I can't honestly remember making. Um, going to Oxford was one of them. Deciding at some point that I wanted to work in advertising was another. Um, deciding that going off to live in Bangkok was a third. And I genuinely cannot remember making any of these decisions. They just kind of happened. I'm sure I sat down and thought about them at, at some point. But, um, but all those experiences definitely shaped me. Um, How? Well, I think the Oxford thing was about, um, I, it, sounds, it sounds a little bit awkward to say out loud perhaps, but I just wanted to be the best. I just wanted right. to go to the best place that I could to study what I, was, what I was best at. It wasn't as though I had some grand passion for Latin and ancient Greek as much as you know, I enjoyed studying it, you know, as much as anyone enjoys you know, school subjects and whatnot. I just knew Oxford was the best place to go study classics. That was what I happened to be good at that was your thing classics. that was my thing right you know it, it could have been anything but that was just the thing that I happened to be good at and so I just wanted to leverage that to the max and did you specifically um single out was it Brazenose College again I can't remember uh exactly at what point I decided Brazenose was the place to be I do remember going to buy the new Spin Doctors album that had just been released that week and telling <laughs> everyone I knew at the open day um that you know, I'm the cool for, kid here. Pocket full of kryptonite was the <laughs> biggest thing going. Right. Um, and, um, and yeah, 
that 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 I think made for a curious series of conversations. I'm but humming it in my head now. I know it's um, it's it's a good tune. Yeah. But um, how did it shape you then? I mean, and and that experience. How much of that is with you still today? And if so, in what shape? Uh, look, it shaped me a lot. Um, in England, the English university system is one where, unless it's medicine or law, you typically don't study something vocational, or at least you didn't back in my day. Um, and so it was all about history of fine art and English lit and languages and, in my case, classics. And really it's about teaching you how to think. There's not much I do now that is different from what I did then. Um, you know, have a bunch of source material that you need to read, you need to analyse and understand it, and as a consequence, form a point of view, um, and then argue that point of view. You know, right now, I argue that point of view to chief execs and boards and, and convince them of uh, that perspective. You know, back then, um, I had the, uh, the honour of, uh, you know, sitting in front of... I remember, I remember sitting in front one morning very hungover of a professor who was a world-leading authority on Aristophanes, an ancient Greek uh, right. comic playwright, feeling woefully underprepared and woefully just ill-equipped to be spruiking whatever my point of view happened to be. Um, but it really focuses the mind. But that process of reviewing, understanding, analysing, you know, developing your own perspective and then arguing it, and, and hopefully, you know, developing an argument that is sufficiently compelling to win the day, so to speak. I mean, that really hasn't changed based on... You Makes know, what a I did lot back. of sense. Were, were there any particular... And, and, and very poignant, too, in terms of knowing how to think and how to position an argument. Methodology. Was there anything that you learned that you go, yeah, th these are the three questions I asked or this is the approach I take that, again, is still with you? No, no. Now that I think about it, there was... Um, and perhaps this was just a bit of kind of old school thinking. You know, there was... There was as much as we learned about rhetoric in terms of Aristotle there was no tools that we were given to kind of develop our own rhetoric necessarily. Right. You know, you would write out your essays longhand and in an even more kind of old school type way. And I don't know if this is still the case today, but I'm sure it probably is. You know, it's one-on-one -on -one tutorials. You write your essay handwritten. There's no computers, um, not unless you're one of the rich kids. And, um, and you read it out. You sat there and you read out your essay out loud. That's interesting. So, um, but, but, you know, beyond kind of knowing where the library might be. But no structure around, around, look, hey, here's how you take apart Aristotle. These no. are the steps you take. Right, no. interesting. Hey, was I, that up to you? Did you form anything? That was up to, I honestly can't remember. Right, okay. That's, that sounds like I can't remember a lot. <laughs> but more usefully, that was something I learned um, in, in, in what was my first role in Australia at Landor. Right. Um, that was where I started to learn or have the opportunity to learn and be taught um, some of those basics around how do you structure an argument. Right. And, and those things are certainly things that stuck with me and I share voraciously and very enthusiastically, you know, with everyone I come across, whether it is... Um, the team around me, um, or in fact, more recently, my 12-year-old son um, and, uh, and the presentations he's starting to give at school. Right. 
let's get into to Landor. Um, obviously, we're still exploring that first question around the things you learned in the early, early part of your career. I'm interested to understand, you did some internships, you went into media companies and ad agencies. Firstly, how do you get into brand identity? So brand identity was... Um my entree was a conversation one night late in Bangkok, very late in Bangkok, um, over beers with a chap who was my first mentor, um, a chap called David Merko. Um, and we were, we, were, we were talking about Landor's rebrand of BP um, to Beyond Petroleum. Yeah. And, and somewhat, well, very tongue-in-cheek, um, discussing the fact that you know they they charged such an incredulous amount of money to kind of fiddle with the logo, you know something that was lost on both of us. But now, of course, you know I fundamentally understand in ways that back then I I couldn't even begin to grasp. Um, and it, that really set me on the path around. I knew I wanted to be a strategist. What was it about that? It's funny. I mean, I've obviously spent some time myself working at BP, and I remember um, Lord Brown still being at the helm and and it had an incredible impact on the organization um that piece of work i mean it wasn't i think the thing i have is it's it's about changing an organization and this this visual thing is but one manifestation mm. having said that it's the thing that people recognize why what was it about that late night conversation that made you go yeah this is this is the space i need to live in i think it's the idea of an organization's identity and something as essential as that being more compelling, at least for me, um, than a, a series of campaigns. And it's not better or worse, it's just different. Um, and there was something about that idea of, of building an identity and, and a platform and a means of expressing what an organization might be about um, that really grabbed my attention. And a little bit like you know, wanting to go to Oxford set me on a course where I wanted to work at Landor. And then it just so happened that maybe two years later, I ended up, or maybe a little longer than that, uh, ended up in Australia, sought out Landor, and waited it out until I got the job. And it took some patience and persistence, but that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a strategist at Landor. Right. So what is it you learned that shaped you in in that early period of your career that is still uh, something that resonates and that you use today yeah look um there's a bunch of stuff i learned um starting out as an intern um the thing that i learned that i don't necessarily still apply today is just to say yes to everything or at least i apply it in different ways wow. when you're an intern you know, you've, you're at uni, it's summer holidays, you've got a four-week stint that you have, you know, begged and borrowed to kind of get. And for me, it, it's unpaid, you're doing whatever you can do, and the marker of success for me in all of those internships was, can I score another four weeks? I've got four weeks to basically get myself another four weeks because that's what is even more difficult to do. Um, and so... It sounds counterintuitive in some respects to be working for free and then try and work for free for twice as long. <laughs> but it was about well, getting it. getting as much experience yeah. as possible. And, right. th and that was invaluable. Yeah. And that meant saying yes to everything. And, and that wasn't about, 
you know, saying yes to absolutely everything and in, in ways that are irrelevant and, and don't have value or currency attached to them. It's more about opportunity, you know, just always being open to opportunity um, and, and the things that might come as a consequence of that, whether they're planned or purely serendipitous. But do you take a risk in that, in that, you know, you're not necessarily judging those opportunities, you're just taking them as they come? Or was that just a reflection of those times being at that age, at that time, trying to start a career? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's that age, those, you know, that, that point in your career where opportunity is everything. And obviously, as you get more experienced and your context changes then how I don't think you still say as yes as much as you did then probably right and it's one of the things that I kind of I'm working on I guess I don't want to say no I just need to learn new ways of how I might say yes um so that it all doesn't kind of fall on on my shoulders right so so I think looking out for those opportunities you know is really important Otherwise, you become quite blinkered and, and, and close-minded. Um, and you just can't think laterally or, or see what those... But that's quite interesting because the, the, particularly if you're successful in your career, you get this sense of, look, I know what works. And over time, um, and I think you almost, I've personally found you almost have to fight it and you need friends and trusted mentors to slap you in the face. Um, the risk is you, you get much more you get this sense of clarity of, well, I know what works and therefore I can start to say no or I can start to avoid these yeses. But you've, you've, is your point here around keeping an open mind on, on everything? I think it is keeping in mind an open mind on everything. And partly that's shaped by the nature of what I do, which is I can be talking to a bank in the morning, a charitable foundation in the afternoon, um, and uh, a company selling, you know, taps and shower heads, you know, over drinks that evening. Right. There's just such diversity in terms of uh, the work that I've always done that it's, I suppose, informed, you know, every other aspect of my life. And, and you find yourselves having to adapt to very, very, very many different contexts during, during any given working week. And so there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach that you can take to that. Right. And so it's, it's just hardwired into, into, into what I do, I suppose. You know, right. I haven't really thought about it in this well, depth we'll come, necessarily. We'll come back to that because I'm intrigued by that. I want to, I want to, part of the reason of getting you here is having somebody with your depth in brand identity. You said earlier that actually getting that strategy gig at Landor was a really important thing for you. You'd land the gig. What is it you learn about um, brand identity or, or any of the methodologies that are associated um, with that that is still part of your modus operandi today? Working at Lander was, was foundational for me insofar as learning those basics of brand strategy and identity. Um, I really didn't know what I was doing at the start but I think they saw in me the potential for someone who could learn and adapt their thinking. Um, and I'd like to think that proved the case over time. Um, but, you know, you learn the, the fundamentals of brand strategy and, and how things work. And I've had the good fortune to work at Landor, then Interbrand, now Future Brand. Right. 
So can you give us any examples, any kind of particular questions? Like when, when you walk into a new client um, and they've said, yes, are there, look, we always ask these three questions and we asked them 20 years ago and I still ask them today. Or is there, is there anything like that that you can share? That's really the, look, the question we used to ask at Landor that I, I don't ask anymore. Right. Um, because I just don't think it's quite so salient um is you know if your brand was an animal what animal ah, would it be and if it right. was a car what, yeah like that stuff just drives me nuts is, um, you're saying that's not valuable i mean so in these podcasts we, we we obviously we ask these three questions about stuff you learned early new stuff and the stuff you've discarded so does this go into the stuff you've discarded box absolutely that, absolutely because it's useless because i think it's relatively superficial to the uh, potential value of what a brand can bring it, it, it talks purely in personality terms now I'm I'm sure there are others who would argue that and argue that vehemently and perhaps even win that argument but if I shift to the question that at Interbrand and Futurebrand I, I, I've always asked and will continue to it's it's what's the role of your brand in contributing to your business you know, what, what role does it perform? And if you understand the role that a business's brand plays and the contribution that it makes, then you can understand what kind of brand or what shape of brand, what kind of flavor of brand they might need um, in order for that brand to generate value. You know, it, is it all about how does our brand help us acquire new customers? Because once we've got them, we know our CX is so great that we'll be able to keep them. Or actually, customers isn't our problem at all. It's all about employees. Our brand is all about how do we engage our own people to deliver a wonderful experience. And if we get that right, well, then we'll get and keep customers. And I think understanding what shape of brand organizations need is the, is the, you know, the, the one if essential got, sort of question I'd always ask. If you've ask. got, I mean, part of the conversation we're having before the podcast was around um, working with clients to recognize they've got a problem or a, a, you know, something that needs working on when it comes to brand, but aren't versed in it. And so I guess if I, I've, I've got to say personally, I see some value in playing some of those um, metaphorical games and, and particularly because you're on a goal to try and personify a brand and make it feel human to some extent. If you don't do that, what, what do you do? Um, so if you've dumped that as a piece of learning going, right, what Kai are you? It's nonsense. What's, what, how, how, do you, how do you bring that sense of personification into the mind of a client, a CEO of a super company, for example, who just doesn't think in those terms ordinarily? So suppose to qualify uh, why I've kind of dumped that thinking, I guess it was good at the time, but it ran its course. Um, and I think that kind of that notion of how do you personify a brand as a car, as an animal, as a whatever it might be, um, you know, just became tagged as something that was relatively superficial. Right. And so I think it, it served its purpose. It was right at the time. I just think the narrative around branding, you know, has had to go beyond that. Right. So, you know, it's the associations that that uh, attracted ultimately that I think diluted its impact because I don't disagree with what you say about the need for lateral thinking to get people to think beyond their current space. And so on the one hand, 
you know, it is about getting people to think differently or take a different perspective on an existing challenge so that they can understand how their brand might fit. But at the same time, you know, you need to be able to balance that with how you might peg brand or any other concept to a framework that they do understand, which might be customer acquisition, shareholder value, employee engagement, new products and service pipeline. And if you can help them fit brand within that framework that they understand and how one contributes to the other, then I think you're able to kind of match what you're doing with what that organization might need in a way in which that organization might understand it. But that's not to discount the importance of lateral thinking. I think they're both valuable. Mm. The problem I think that many organizations chase, uh, uh, face is that they have an ill-fitting brand that just isn't operationally fit for purpose. And uh, just like a suit that is too big or too small just doesn't quite work for them or, or show them off at their best. And so that's why I think it's a balance of really understanding the organization and what brand is the right fit for them. Does that, I mean, I get the value of that. It just sounds a little bit functional. And it got me thinking about, as the leader of you know, an eminent brand identity business, how much of your role is to open up the minds of your senior clients and help them learn a bit about what brand identity is is really about beyond the the functional um you know some of the great work that i've seen from future brand from landor is you know the bp stuff suddenly this cold isolated oil brand started to feel human it connected with nature i mean you know we can debate and we can tear about tear apart the extent to which um bp was progressive i mean actually i observed myself it, it it changed some conversations internally and there was a bit of a nudge into solar um, even though oil was the core of it but it had an impact right um, and part of it was was through that emotional connection to what extent are you having to have those conversations beyond the shareholder value and the, the more functional stuff so I've, I've got two kind of stakeholder groups which I know sounds incredibly functional now that I say that out loud but I, I take your point about it all sounds very functional right and and there's a reason for that and I suppose I'm probably sat here feeling more so with my client hat on than with my kind of agency right. hat on so in my role I have to manage a fine balance between those two camps you know, on the one hand, I have to think very carefully, and I do, about how any organization is going to be positioned um, to grasp with both hands and embrace the work that we do. And, and there's a little bit of a, you know, there's, there's work that goes into that to make sure that they are receptive to, to whatever branding work we might provide and that it's well-founded and well-considered and appropriate for them. And then on the other, you know, I've got, and it's, this is an exaggeration, but I've got all these creative hooligans that I need to somehow <laughs> energize and inspire and tame and corral and pick up off the floor and kick up the bum and, and, and you know, get excited about doing something that this client has never seen before. Right. And so, you know, yes, you know, I might veer at times to being, it's kind of sounding like it's very considered and, and functional, but in some respects, 
not wanting to give away any trade secrets, but in some <laughs> respects, it's a bit of a Trojan horse. Insofar uh, right. as I need, I need to balance both of those things. Right. So because is that a case of that, that high degrees of empathy if you're dealing with a traditional CEO of a finance company and talking their language and then being back at base and talking a very different language with a different style with a bunch of creatives, essentially? Essentially, yes. And, okay. and that's not politics. That's just, rep that's just talking to people in a language they understand. And... You know, I don't shy. I don't shy away from that because the alternative is oil and water. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and it's really about how do these things gel in a way that does have cumulative effect. Right. And so my role is is largely one of a, a kind of a bridging role, if you like. Um, and I think strategy has to play a role in in bridging those functions. I think far too much brand strategy is cast aside in favour of a creative brief that doesn't really resemble the brand strategy and surprise surprise clients have a shock on their face when they see the creative work and it doesn't in their minds at least represent the brand strategy they feel they signed off and there's a disconnect between the two and so there's so much work that needs to be done to bridge ideas and implementation and that's fundamentally my role that and and, and so you have to think differently about the context it you we were laughing earlier about you occasionally being described as a politician, but when you talk like that, yeah, there's, I'm starting to think, and I can resonate with it having run an industry body, which is some days you feel like the UN because you're trying to find alignment between what can be quite disparate groups. You are in a way that is not compromise, is not a trade-off, but actually helping people understand that, you know, if we shave off a few edges you know, here and I'm oh, not shave off your edges. That makes it sound like a, a compromise. But, you know, you're wanting to help people understand how these things can fit together. Yeah. And, and that is a combination of, of logic and reason and, and rhetoric, you know, but also emotion and inspiration. And, and you kind of dial things up and down as you go. So let's go back to brand identity and how that's changed. And part of, you know, the, the concept of a philosophy, the best of both is, the blend of traditional thinking and digital thinking over the last 20 years you've seen this incredible proliferation of um, brands born out of a digital age i mean i'm fascinated about um, building identity and personality and foundation for something that has never been physical and i'm intrigued to sort of understand your take on that whether that is a different methodology around brand identity or whether that's the same has that as as we've seen more and more digital brands appear has that changed your thinking and if so how it's changed it's changed my thinking or our thinking in terms of the team with whom i work you know all of this is very much of a of a team effort it's probably a hundred people kind of stood behind me um figuratively speaking insofar as everything, you know, I have to share. It's, it's not just um, any one individual. But, you know, it's changed all of our thinking in a couple of ways. One is, as, as provocative as this sounds, and I do and I don't mean it, but, you know, that logos are just becoming less useful. You know, these things that sit there, top left or top right hand corner, kind of waving at the world saying, hello, look at me. You know, it, 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 it just doesn't work like that anymore. You know, once you tap that icon and you're in that app, you'll never see a logo. Um, and it's really about the range of tools that you have at your disposal 
to convey a brand identity, not just logos, not just color. Does that mean you need actually, and I was just thinking about if you take something like Google, which on its homepage is changing daily and that, that's part of the brand now, that you need even firmer clarity on who you are and what you stand for to allow you to be iterative visually. Absolutely. You need a much clearer, simpler fix on who you are so that you can go off into the world and do myriad different things. Um, so I think Has that changed your job and what you do as a business then? It does. I mean, everyone talks about systems thinking. Right. Um, and as much as I'm not a massive fan of um, kind of those coined phrases, I think, you know, we've always in... in in what would have been called historically graphic design. I think graphic designers have always thought, whether intuitively or explicitly, about brand identity systems. And so how things work as a system, you know, no kind of um, catchy phrases or kind of snappy, hyped up words, but just the basics of how things work as a system has always been a, a fundamental of graphic design. You know, grid layouts, brochure templates, um, you know, wireframes for websites and so forth. And so that systems thinking is really important and to how you build those kinds of identities. And how does that work in the sense of my own experience has been part of the exercise is trying to articulate with the agency the, the platforms on which an identity might live. But we're in an age where... Um, we might not know them. You might, you know, you might not know that this thing needs to be alive in a VR headset. Um, and there's certain things you can maybe figure out and go on oh, within the next couple of years. But there are the things you don't know that you don't know, but you know something will be there. Yep. How do you plan and build for that? So it's, it's the shift from things looking right to things feeling right. So, you know, it used to be, and, and perhaps in some degrees, you know, still is for many organisations and the brands, um, that you rattle through the guidelines and you make sure things look right. And everyone needs to be an expert in kerning and PMS refs and whatever else. But more and more, and this is something that I've learned more recently at Future Brand. Mm. Um, it's about driving emotion and the power of feeling. And it's about how things might feel. And that is something that all of us, whether you are an expert, typographer, or a marketer, or a chief exec, you know how things feel. And so when it comes to building that kind of systems thinking into any brand, if you can articulate what that feeling might be that we want people to experience, well, that is something that you can extend quite simply so that whether you're looking at a brochure, reviewing an ad, kind of staring into some goggles, it's like, does this feel like our brand? And in a world where you can't replicate your brand copy and paste style, as BP would have done perfectly well <laughs> in the good old days of uniformity, you know, in a world where you can't do that anymore and you don't quite know where your brand might end up, the question you have to ask yourself is, how, how, how do we want our brand to make people feel? How objective can you make that? I mean, it's one thing when you're sat here in, in Sydney. It's another thing if you've got branches and empowered teams across the country it's another thing if you've got them across the region or indeed across the planet um it's easy when you've got a well you've got a style guide but if the style guide starts talking about feeling is there not a huge risk of kind of design creep uh, well there's there's a huge risk if you're relying on guidelines 
Right. You know, the amount of money that's been invested in guidelines that people never read is, is inordinate, right. you know? Um, and so we need to stop producing guidelines because people stopped reading them right. a long time ago. So that's another one for, the th for that third bucket. Well, and look, no I mean, more brands being animals, no well, more guidelines. <laughs> what, what's there in, um, so what, what replaces it's the guidelines? Training. You right. need to train people. Got you it. need to sit in front of people or, or sit people in front of a camera or a video and you need to train them and, and explain what it is that you're trying to do. And that needs to be hands-on and it needs to be practical. Um, and that then needs to be something that you kind of review, you know, that you talk about on an ongoing basis. It's not set and forget. It's not we rebranded last year, so we don't need to worry about it now. It's an ongoing organic thing. It's one of the ways in which brand has evolved. It's very much a living, breathing thing these days, less so a static logo that sits on a, on a business card. And so it's something that you need to manage. How do you bring, again, coming back to your point around systems thinking, how do you... I'm constantly, in the spirit of best of both, um, and it's a, it's a personal struggle in some senses, is art versus science, right? It's kind of judgment versus there's a process for this. Um, I love the notion of, does it feel right? Um, and I love the notion of brands being alive, but then, you know, is there again a risk of the loudest voice wins because today somebody comes in going, our brand identity's out of date, we need to do something about it, as opposed to, hang on, we do a review every quarter. Based yeah. on your experience, how do you reconcile that? Data, empirical evidence. Right. So, kind of understanding you know, if people feel a certain way about our brand, whether they're customers or employees, how do we measure that feeling in terms of their behavior, acquisition, retention rates, whatever it might be. And so, you know, more and more, it's about how do you measure this in a way that is quantifiable and therefore useful in the way in which you might manage your brand over time. Now, there are really big and, and, and gnarly ways in which you might do that in terms of big data and, and quantitative research and whatnot. But there are really cheap and cheerful kind of lo-fi ways in which you might do that, which is, you know, search and social analysis. Right. You know, we all know, or if we don't know, we, we, we this is, you know, we, we, we all tell the truth to, to Google. Um, so if you search for uh, Gucci handbags, it probably means you want to buy a Gucci handbag for someone. You're not just doing it for kicks. And so... You know, search reveals a lot about what people are doing and then obviously on social, what people are saying. And so those are both two lenses which, you know, if you're short on cash and time, um, can be a useful proxy for uh, how people are responding to your brand and, and, and how it may or may not feel. But either way, you need some data, you need some evidence in the room um, in order to help propel your argument forward. And, you know, one of the advantages of brand becoming more valuable and visible, you know, right through to the top echelons of an organization and, and board level in ways that it wasn't or hasn't been historically, is that, you know, those boards and chief execs and, and leadership teams are asking more and more for, well, how are we measuring this stuff? And so there's a bit of push and pull around that, but data in the room is always going to help. Is that a new, I mean... I'm obviously interested in our kind of three questions and three buckets, and we've spent plenty of time on the on the beginning. Um, I think we've covered off a lot of the new stuff. 
But again, just one thing to prod is brand and ROI. That was a thing, you know, what brand value um, started emerging, I think, 10 or 15 years ago. What's the state of that look like? Are you getting more boards and more leadership teams looking for a, a commercial relationship between brand um, and business outcome? Yeah, look, brand valuation as a thing was something actually that Interbrand pioneered, my mm. previous employer, back in 80s, I think. Yeah, right. Um, so it's been around for a little while. But what we're talking about now isn't necessarily brand valuation. It's about how are we, how are we understanding and analyzing and measuring whatever it is that we're doing in terms of making decisions. Right. So, you know, yes, it becomes a, a virtuous uh, circle in terms of what data comes in and then what data you read out and then what's the differential between the two. But I suppose I'm thinking more about if in a world of feeling where we all engage emotionally and emotion drives decision, you know, in that world, how do you complement that with data right. to make sure that you're making reasoned decisions, not ne around your business. They won't be rational necessarily, but at least they'll be reasoned. An objective as exactly. opposed to, I think. Exactly. Right. And then like the other thing, the second thing that has really changed is, is uh, speed. Hmm. So, and not just speed per se, but the idea that faster can indeed be better. And there's lots that we now do at very high velocity. You run sprints now. So can brand identity be, be built iteratively? Parts of it, yes. Ah. And certainly the sprints that we run are largely around analysis and strategy and narrative and then the front end of identity. Right. Beyond that, I think you do need legwork and time and craft in order to make an identity work um, across an organization, the myriad different ways in which it's going it's to come to life. Is that two streams of work then? Or how does that, what does that look like? So... How do you bring Agile to brand identity? I love it. <laughs> so there's, there's conditions we always look for um, for a sprint to work. You need strategic clarity. So from a business perspective, that business pretty much needs to know what, what it's doing, what's its product or, or what's its um, offer to market. And so you need that strategic clarity. Otherwise, we don't have a kind of a business plan type foundation on which to then build the brand. The second thing is you need stakeholder alignment. You need that executive team, for argument's sake, to have a, a reasonably shared perspective on what success looks like, as opposed to them being mired in political complexities and differences of opinion. And then you need data. You need some evidence. You need research of whatever kind it might be um, in order to have some basis of facts from which you can then develop the strategic thinking around the brand. So if you have a business strategy, stakeholder alignment, and access to data, then I think you have the conditions to move at a much faster pace than you might otherwise in right. terms of developing the thinking. Because you don't need to go to market to do a whole lot of research. You don't need to spend weeks on end doing the stakeholder management thing 
You know, you don't need to take two steps forward, one step back in terms of what that business strategy might be. And you can indeed compress it all into three days to get from a standing start, albeit with those conditions in place, from a standing start to... So brand identity through hackathon, I think, is what I'm now feeling. Well, (laughs) and look, this is where perhaps you're more au fait with some of the tags for these things than, than I am. All I'm really thinking about is we can get this done bloody fast. Yeah, and look, and I mean, and, and that's important so, for clients because yeah. time is now a more meaningful currency yeah. than money. They just don't have the time. Some of this is terminology, and 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 you've got to kind of strip all of that away. Some of it is absolutely new methodology. But in essence, I think what you're saying and what I subscribe to is, you if you can get better, more rigorous planning up front, and particularly get the right people. I mean, it feels like just. I'm vomiting cliches, but hey, um, the right people then, and you can carve out time and space for them, then you can put them, my hackathon experience was getting the right people across an entire business, including external partners in a room for a few days solid. And shit, not only do you achieve a lot, but it's the conversations that happen in between the process that really is where sometimes you find the magic. Yes. Call it what you want. Yep. I kind of think you're... That, Maybe on a similar page? Yes, yes. Right. That sounds familiar. Okay. And, and the thing that I love about it, where I think there's a huge amount of value, is just the decisiveness that comes with it. Yeah. You know, people are... You, 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 you're not forcing people to make a decision. I don't think you can force people to do anything. But you're creating an environment in which people feel enabled to be very decisive. Well, you can go deeper rather than when we'll have a meeting, we've got our meeting on this one. It's just, it makes sense. Um, I'm conscious that we're, we're heading towards the finishing tape. I think I've uh, heard quite a lot about the new stuff you've um, learned over the years and how the development of brand identity has evolved. We've touched on a couple of big, big ones for things that you've discarded, the, the brand metaphors and the, the style guide. Is there anything else we've missed that you've, you know, as you look back over your career, that you've gone, ah, dump this, not, not useful anymore? So there was one thing that was again said to me, a piece of advice I was given by this mentor of mine back in Bangkok, this American chap. And um, Merke said to me that, um, you know, we were talking about what I might want to do one day. And I was talking about, you know, I want to run an agency. That sounds like a laugh. <laughs> And, um, and he said, you know, planners don't run agencies, suits do. And that stuck with me. And when I was at Landor and had the opportunity to switch out of strategy into client management, I took it in order to run a business unit and run a P&L with that advice echoing through my mind. And look, it was useful, valuable advice for me, you know, that I stand by and and certainly kind of put me on the track to where I am today, for better or for worse. But I think that's one of those things that I would now discard. It worked for me. Right. But that notion that there's only one type of person that can run an agency or more broadly, one type of function that can be a leader, I think I'd certainly discard insofar as you can be a creative thinker or a strategic thinker, you know, more analytical or methodical. And, and you can have whatever job title is attached to that creative director, planner, you know, media strategist, whatever mm. it might be. Mm. 
and you can go on to run an agency. And I think there's a much broader suite of skills and knowledge and uh, craft, if you like, that goes into leadership these days than ever before. And so I think we need to be looking for our leaders from a whole range of different backgrounds as opposed to one type of person or, or, or another. I love the thought of just killing stereotypes, you know, gender, racial, professional, functional, every single one of them. Um, it's interesting to see that the new CEO of Unilever Globally is an ex-CMO. Mm. Um, but actually, you know, if we bring it back to our neighbourhood, most CEOs are, you know, CFOs still. And so I think that feels like something we should be challenging. So it's good to hear. And Richard, thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Um, it's great to literally have a scholar sat across <laughs> the table from me. And uh, I've learned a lot. So appreciate it. Thank you. Excellent. Have a good day. Cheers.